Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good morning, Journey Church. First things first, I want to remind you if you, you are a member and you have not voted, you have until 11 o'clock. So you have about 35 minutes. And it's very simple, Uh, take out your phone, take a snapshot of the QR code, or just pull up your emails and follow the the link. I did it this morning, if I can do it, anyone can do it, I'm a technophobe. And uh, very simple, let me also just say, um, it supports our mission and our vision. And if I could just say a word about that. Our mission is to make disciples of and for the Lord Jesus Christ And a disciple is someone who thinks like, loves like, and lives exactly like Jesus. And we are so committed to that, and we're committed to doing that in a church culture and leadership culture of truth and genuine goodness. And I will say this, we have not always gotten that right. And yet we are humble, and we are tenaciously committed to that, and we are repentant when we get it wrong. That's our vision. And if you can support that, think about this. We are tenaciously committed to that vision as a staff, even if it means cutting our own salaries. And no, that didn't happen for Tyler and me this year. I have done that. But for this year, Matt Fry uh, recommended his own salary being reduced and changed into hourly. And so if that's not godly leadership, I don't know what is. That Matt Fry is actually starting a business. And, you know, lo and behold, in the the age in which we are going into, who knows but that by the end of the decade, most pastors in North America are bivocational anyway. So we're well aware of that and committed to the ministry and the mission of the church and uh, the calling that God has put on our lives. So, yes, our budget is 100000 lower than last year. Um, but I think that that's probably an easy vote, is we believe in stewardship and fiscal, fiscal uh, being fiscally conservative. So, anyway, make sure you vote. We're going to announce it by the end of the service. Well, let me tell you, it was over uh, uh, 120 years ago. In fact, it was exactly 123 years ago that the first orchard in the Phoenix area was planted by a man named W.J. Murphy. And where he planted the first naval orange orchard was an intersection in the Phoenix area of 56th Street and Indian School. And what is so significant about that intersection other than good citrus? is this, that I was born down the road and brought home to a house about 200 yards from that intersection. And I lived at that house until I went away to college, came back, and got married. I moved back in and then got married, moved out of that house in the Phoenix, Arcadia area. Now, some of those orange trees are still alive. Uh, On my brother John's property, he owns a house that I was raised in. Now, some of those naval orange trees are still producing magnificent naval oranges 123 years later. 
one tree that I remember going up wasn't so magnificent. You see, what had happened is uh, the tree that was grafted onto rootstock was frozen to death. But a sucker below the graft from the rootstock grew up. And over time, it looked like a navel orange tree. In fact, it was loaded with beautiful-looking fruit. But the fruit itself, we called it ornamental oranges. Good for throwing at moving objects, but not for eating. More than once, I saw a, a passerby pull an orange off the tree, believing that they had found a, a treasure. And to peel it open and to watch their face. To see their teeth etched with citric acid. And their stomach soured. Okay, beware of ornamental oranges. So I couldn't resist. My dad was not a practical joker, but I was. And so one day I prepared a special plate of navel orange slices intermixed with ornamental and I watched my dad as he read his Wall Street Journal. And I watched from behind the corner until he finally picked the ornamental. Oh, what great fun. <laughs> what great fun to hear him gagging. And what's the point of the story? Beware. Beware. Beware of bad trees. Beware of bad fruit. Beware of mischievous sons. And this morning, beware. Beware of false prophets. This morning, we're back into the teaching of Jesus. We've taken many weeks to get here. We're in our final run right up to Christmas. And what's the point and the purpose and why this time of year, all the way from summer, all the way up to Christmas, in the Sermon on the Mount, why? In Luke's gospel, we read these words from Jesus himself. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you to do? So think about that. Here at Christmas time, you're going to celebrate Christmas, the Christ Mass. That is a Christian church-focused holiday, the Christ Mass. You're going to worship the incarnate Jesus Remembering his birth, are you going to do what he said to do? Are you going to say, Lord, Lord, sweet little baby Jesus, or are you going to say, my Lord and my God? What do you say to do? Because we want to be all in. We want to be followers of Jesus. So we come up to the final movement of four major movements throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And in order to understand the final and fourth movement, we back up to the, to the conclusion of the third movement. The conclusion found in chapter 7, verse 12, is not only the conclusion to the third movement, it's not only the conclusion to the entire teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, but we discover it's the conclusion to the entire Old Testament the law and the prophets. It's where you find the golden rule. And so for context and by way of review, you can see it up there. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And if we were to put this all together and see what Jesus says about it later when he was challenged. With what's the most important thing. 
And out of the 613 laws that rabbis used to jostle and jive with in order of, of, of importance, Jesus brought it back to this. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the entirety of the law and the prophets. And so what's that mean is to love God supremely with everything you've got in such a way that it produces in you a genuine and sincere love for each and every human being who has ever walked the planet, even your enemies, even those who persecute you, even those who have hurt you, to love them with such a sincere and godly love that it is as if you are loving your neighbor as yourself. And that is God's standard of perfection. And yes, it is impossible to keep clearly, but it is also the standard that is beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, a standard that God is able to produce in us. And that, in conclusion of the entire sermon, is so important before we move into the fourth and final section. We started it last Sunday, but it's a threefold or fourfold warning and a threefold commandment. Last Sunday, we looked at the commandment enter. It wasn't just an invitation, out of love. God himself incarnate says, enter. He's not even leaving it open for an invitation. He's saying, what is stopping you? What kind of sin would you love so much that you would not enter into eternal life? Sin is delightful. It's intoxicating, but it's terrible. And you can't have it. You can't have your pet sins and enter the narrow gate. But nor can you have your religious self righteousness and in the end it's all the same it's self-centered and pride is sin you think you're so much better than everyone else you cannot enter the narrow gate and the ground is level at the foot of the cross sinner and saint alike broken and needy that's the narrow gate enter now, for those who said, yes, naked I come, alone I enter, amen. But guess what? The hard way for most of us is a very long path. And in one sense, life goes fast, right? You're like, whoa, I'm, I'm this old, I've got grandkids. That's crazy. On another level, all the crazy, convoluted and Chapters of my life that I did not see coming. I thought I had it calculated, the hard things that I was saying yes to, only to find out the real hard path is much harder than what I could have conceptualized. And so here's the thing, on that hard path, there are many dangers, toils, and snares, to quote a great hymn. Right? It's a long, hard path. Many pitfalls there. And so the second of the threefold warning. The first one is enter. The second one, beware. Beware of false prophets. And this is what we read in, in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Follow along with me. I'm going to stop on beware. But he says, beware. 
And the word in the Greek is prosecco. Sounds like a kind of wine or something, I guess. That's not what it is. What it means is a word picture in the Greek. I love the Greek language for this reason and the Hebrew. The word pictures are rich. Prosecco means to bring near. To bring near. You're going to put on your readers, your bifocals, and you're going to bring it near, and you're going to consider it carefully. Beware, Prosecco. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Beware of false prophets. Why? Because ideas and examples... People that you think you respect, you go, I want to turn out to be just like her. And watching their example can have dire consequences. Ideas have consequences. And in this instance, deadly consequences. Now, as we jump into this topic, there is a warning in a guardrail on the other side of the sermon. And if you would give me a moment to set up the, the guardrail. The guardrail is this. Balance this with reasonableness, gentleness, genuineness, generosity, and kindness. Because everything that gets labeled heresy is not heresy. And some people love to, to drop the H-bomb. Everything that you disagree with is not heresy. Heresy technically means that which divides or demands a division. And so throughout church history, those that actually get the label are apostates, meaning they leave the very clear biblical path that everyone agrees on with some nuance within that. These are the people that say, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Jesus was not God incarnate. There are more than one ways. Hell is not eternal. This is when they're denying very clear teachings. That gets the label so that if someone believes it, they end up in the lake of fire. That's a heretic. Lots of things that get labeled that. But we have to remember the other teachings of the scripture and what we're going to agree to disagree on and say, well, man, we've been struggling with these topics for a long time. So there's an example in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9, when Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, goes up on the mount, and it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And while he's gone, the rest of the disciples are left behind, and they hear some other people that they don't know throwing around the name of Jesus, and they put a stop to it because they weren't authorized. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain, they run up to him and go, hey, guess what? We heard some people talking in your name, but we stopped it. They're like the bird dog that kills the neighbor's cat and drug it to the doorstep. Look at what we did. We killed a bad thing. And Jesus says these th this to them in Mark 9, do not stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Doesn't mean that they're all good or come out to be good in the end. He's just putting up the guardrail that, that there's a, a, a reasonableness that we're, we need to put in here, okay? That just because they don't agree with all 200 fine points of doctrine that you like does not make them a heretic. So there's a generosity here. But I will say this, going back to the other guardrail that we are talking about today, that every single last one of us has models and examples and parents and teachers and professors and coaches and pastors and trainers and gurus, whatever you want to call them, counselors. Every single one of us has these things in our, in our lives And never has it been more possible and probable that we can actually choose the ones that we really like. That help reinforce what we already think. Warning. Warning. And this goes to that other other thing. Just because you like everything they say doesn't mean they're the best thing for you we got to remember what things can we disagree on, what things can we absolutely not disagree on. And those are those guardrails. So listen, uh, Paul told a middle-aged pastor, he said that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And never in the history of the world has it become more possible, even more probable, that Christians in this age would be able to and actually quite delighted that they get to do that. Think about the books and the blogs and the podcasts and the teachings and the teachers and the YouTube videos that are at our fingertips. I'll also say this about that. the, The hunger is really good. Well done. Christian radio in sermons. I love that. I want you to supplement. I want you to be so hungry for the truth and for Jesus that you want more than what you can get in church and in a small group. I applaud that hunger. But you put these two things together. The hunger and the accessibility and the potential For error in thinking, loving, and living is off the charts. Beware. Beware. Now, it's bad now, but guess what? This has been dangerous for well over 3,000 years. I'm I'm just cherry-picking. I mean, I could have taken you from Genesis to Malachi all over, maybe in every single book of the Old, Old Covenant, Law and Prophets. I'm just going to pick on one chapter in Jeremiah and show you. So this, this wasn't even the northern tribes that were apostate. This is Judah. This is Jerusalem. And this is what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 23. God speaking through Jeremiah, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. Their character and their confession is corrupt. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. A few verses later, he says, 
they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. It's all very positive and encouraging, isn't it? And then in, in a few verses later, in verses 21 through 22, God says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. They couldn't wait to say something good that is false, in other words. I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So that's just like one portion that's loaded with uh, the what of false teachers. Um, we're told earlier on in Jeremiah why they do this. One of the three major reasons that I'll list in a moment. But in Jeremiah 6, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of the Lord and says, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. They want more money. That's what they're in it for. I would add this. Sexual immorality is named in the scriptures. And prestige or honor. Power. They love it. They love the praise of people. They want more money, they want more sex, and they want more image. So those are the motives. And uh, Jeremiah says, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. It's all good. It's all positive. It's all encouraging. When there is no peace. What's the bottom line? The bottom line for each one of us, and, and I can't go into all the detail. I'm not going to name a bunch of names today and say, be careful this, be careful that. Uh, we do work hard as pastors and elders here to carefully curate and to have an informed opinion. Um, but today is not going to be going through all the things that we could go through and talking about people by name. But listening to the words of Jesus and fostering a discerning heart that hungers for truth at any cost in you and in me. Here's the bottom line. Beware. Beware. Few life leaders will actually lead us to life. Beware. You say few. Few. Why not some? The reason is why. Because Jesus and the apostles said many. Many. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 24, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then the apostle John in 2 John 1, 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, gone out from within the church. Many, not just a few. Well, what's the big deal? What's at stake? What is... You might say, you know, I'm a very discerning person. This is my jam. I love this talk. I'm so, I got the gift of discernment. And my question is, are you certain? Here's the first fill in the blank under the bottom line is, false life leaders are subtle, but always dangerous. Subtle. Now, when I say subtle, you're thinking about a character quality or personality trait. That's not what I'm talking about. Subtle means difficult to detect. So they might actually be playing right into your idea of what's important. For instance, 
I love Pastor Jim. He tells it like it is. It's raw and rough around the edges. So I know he's not a false prophet. Well, what if I actually know that's what you're looking for? What if I know my audience? What if there could be a bull in a china shop that's spewing off crazy talk? And you go, that can't be. That's not subtle. What if they know how to play to your crowd? And mouthing off is part of your tribe. That's subtle. Huh? Be careful. Beware. They're subtle. Always dangerous. This is what Jesus said. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravenous wolves. What does this mean? Well, one of two things. Either they actually put on a sheep costume. And they slip into the church, and it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. You can't tell the two apart when they're sprouting. It's only when the grain comes up, and you go, oh, that's the bearded Darnell. That's a weed. Eat it, and you fall asleep, maybe forever. But that's wheat. And you can't tell them apart until the harvest. Okay, they're wearing a sheep costume, or they're wearing rough wool, not leather or fine clothes, they're wearing rough wool like shepherds did. So they either look like a sheep woven in or a pastor, which means shepherd. Okay, that's what it means. Uh, sheep's clothing, one or the other, maybe both. They look just like. Why? Because it's always easier to gain an advantage with trusting and convinced people. And so their job, I'm not saying it's a good job or a godly job, but in their mind is to gain trust and to write and teach whatever they need to get that advantage. They're subtle. They're dressed in sheep's clothing. But in the end, they are bitter, nasty, teeth-etching, stomach-souring fruit. Years ago, we had Dr. Woodbridge, and uh, Dr. Woodbridge, I think he's retired now, maybe gone to be with Jesus, tenured professor in church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, our free church seminary that's quite famous. Dr. Woodbridge was here on a Sunday morning teaching a seminar on ancient church history, and he made this statement that stuck with me uh, all these years. He said that all of the confirmed heretics throughout the history of the church from the ancient church up through the Reformation, had one thing in common. They were all really, really nice. That's mind-blowing. The, the number one thing that we love, us, but is he nice? He's so kind. He's so gentle. He's likable. He's interesting. He's important. He's sophisticated. She's so smart. She's so attractive. And throughout the history of the church, this has been the primary entrance point. A likability factor used to gain an advantage so that they can be on the inside with, with unsuspecting prey. They will always be subtle. And don't think that you are immune. Jesus said these words in Matthew 24 again, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even 
the elect. Born again, adopted into God's family, uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit of Christ himself. And yet the Antichrist and Antichrists will seek to and sometimes succeed in tricking, deceiving even the elect. Apostle Paul said that this would happen as well. He's on a trip going to Jerusalem to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to get arrested and get a free boat ride to Rome. And he stops off in, in uh, Asia Minor and the Ephesian pastors come down to meet him and he gives them this word of warning. So this is after Jesus prophesied of what would happen in the end of time. Paul said it was going to happen in immediate time. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, with, with, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he says, so, so pastors, leaders, there is a call to guard the flock, to be well-read, to study, to think. Yes, but there's a responsibility for everyone. But Paul says this to these pastors. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in. Things, think that Paul knew the Sermon on the Mount? I think he knew it quite well. Fierce wolves will come in among you. So these are uh, teachers who will come in from the outside into the, the local churches. They're not going to spare the flock. And then watch this. And that from among your own selves will arise. So not only are they going to come in from the outside, they're going to actually be here and they're going to turn face. They already have trust. We were there at their baptism. We discipled them. But they are going to turn and they're going to rise within the church itself. Speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them, therefore be alert. And then by the time Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote his tiny epistle on this whole subject, Jude 4, Jude says it already happened for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And what do they do? They bring thinking and uh, attitude and an example and a lifestyle that in time corrupts those who look to them. Here's a couple of examples of bad things that happen by misidentifying not only sheep and wolves clothing, but the wrong kind of tree and fruit or the wrong kind of, of uh, not fauna, but flora. Okay, here's the first one. This is a magic mushroom. My brother John took this picture in northern Arizona this year. Proliferation of mushrooms. Now, mushrooms are good food, but if you eat this one, you're going to be in the spirit world. Like maybe, maybe in more ways than one. Your heart might still be beating, but you are treading the paths of the netherworld. Or you're just going to go there because your heart's going to stop. That's a magic mushroom. You go, okay, a hallucinogenic mescaline, right? My Uncle John, not my brother John, my Uncle John, oldest of my dad's family, when he was a kid, he was a self-taught botanist. This is in the 60s during, during Vietnam. And he misidentified a mushroom and ate it. This is what he says. It messed me up so bad, I went and joined the army. <laughs> Sorry, those of you who are army guys. That's, I didn't say it. Love you. Love you. But that's my Uncle John. It probably damaged him for life. 
True story. Messed up his brain for life. Here's something that's probably in a lot of our backyards. This is called uh, Texas Mountain Laurel, and this is it, this in the springtime. You might recognize this. It grows wild in Texas, but lots does really well in Tucson in uh, Phoenix area. Um, others call it fire bean because kids like to take the hard beans and scrape them on the sidewalk and then burn each other with them because they're so hard. Beautiful tree. They call it the grape soda tree. Grape soda tree because the flowers smell like grape soda. But this is what the Audubon Society Field Guide to North American Trees says about this tree. The consumption of a single seed, show the seed, next picture. The consumption of a single seed is enough to kill a full-grown adult. Okay, but listen to this. Scottsdale Public School System planted several of these at elementary schools around Scottsdale including Hopi Elementary School where my nephews went to school. And yet one bean consumed and you're a dead man or a dead girl. And then many of you know the story from July 2013, um, Reed Park Zoo, the male giraffe named Watutu that died from eating this plant. That is a plant that many of us know, it's all over Tucson, called oleander. And a zookeeper just had some trimmings and go, ah, feed it to the giraffe. One died and one barely lived. Okay, what's the point of these stories is Proverbs 14 and 16. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein leads to death. Seems right, it seems good, seems plausible. Sounds like the very gospel you're finally looking for. A breath of fresh air. And yet it's the very thing that poisons you. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And he doesn't mean godly philosophy. That word is great. It means love of wisdom. Philosophia. Philosophy's good. Love wisdom. But worldly philosophy that can take you captive even as a child of God. And then finally, what Jesus said to the, the angel of the church in Philadelphia. In Revelation 3.11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So here's what's so dangerous. You can be held captive in this life by false teaching and false teachers. It can severely damage your eternal reward as a child of God. And yes, it can lead to death. It's pretty serious. So what do we do about that? We look for the fruit. We look for the fruit. This is what Jesus said. It's dangerous. They're subtle. Remember that. It's not going to be on the surface. They're not going to come announce to you, I'm the Antichrist. Can I be your pastor? I want to sleep with everyone first, but can I be your pastor? And by the way, what's in your wallet? I need some, you know, it's not going to happen that way. But the end will be the same. So what do you do? Look for fruit. This is what Jesus says. You will recognize them by their fruits. Plural. There's more than one kind of fruit that these individuals produce. And then you know the middle section. We already read about uh, thorn bushes and figs. And like, look, that's just a logical uh, explanation. The plant itself is going to produce the fruit in time. And then on the other side, he says it a second time. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Plural. So two times. I'm talking about trees and fruits, all right? 
What is it about fruit that's so important? And it's this, that it takes time. So you're not going to catch it necessarily in one chapter of a book. You're not going to catch it in one sermon or maybe not even in just one sermon series. You need to stick around long enough to see what comes out of the individual in three ways. We'll get to that in a moment. So fruit takes time. And secondly, remember the word beware means you've got to observe it up close. So it's not a casual gloss and yeah, he's a good guy and I don't know what he said. No, you're actually looking at this and saying this is important, this matters. And we're looking at it up close with our reading glasses on or a microscope or a, or a magnifying lens over time. And a couple scriptures that tell us to do this. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Oh man, Christians can be so gullible. You want to know what I run into? All the time. Little quotes I hear in my mind is like, I'm not photographic memory. I've got an audiographic memory. So I hear a quote and I go, that'll teach, and I hold on to it. Or an illustration. But in these days, I always go back and check my sources. And I'm telling you, time and time and time again, I go, can't use that story anymore. Can't tell that story. I would have as a youth pastor because I was like, well, whatever, that sounds funny. Um, but I go, it's a lie. It's not true. Even stories that go around Christian circles that are not true, but suckers Keep on posting them to Facebook. We are gullible people. But God's word says, don't do that. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see that they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out in the world. And yes, you can get better at this. The writer of Hebrews said this to his listeners in Hebrews 5.14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So you can get better at this, but what's the overall point? Here's, here's the sub-point to fill in the blank, is this. False life leaders, not only are they subtle, but always dangerous, but they are detectable. You can, you can actually know them, but only over time. They are detectable, but over time. We will detect them by one of three kinds of of faulty fruit. You ready for these? Because we're going to go quickly. First off is their confession. What they teach, their actual doctrine. And I'm, I'm going to warn you, they're not going to show up and say, hey, I deny the virgin birth. Hey, I deny the deity of Christ. In fact, quite often, it's more by what they don't say than what they do say. Jesus talked about them earlier on in the sermon when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. See, there's the problem. They relax it. They smooth it out. They dumb it down so that everyone can achieve it. Instead of, oh, I need a savior. Ouch. Oh, I'm not there yet. Humility. So that's what they do. But let me also add from the last section last week, there's also no narrow gate. There's no hard path. There's no sin, judgment, and righteousness. There's no repentance 
changing your mind about your sinful life. There's no humbling of one's self. It's all quite encouraging and positive and affirming. I was in a meeting with a very wealthy business owner here at this church. <coughs> and we were in a meeting and there were some non-believers there. He was actually trying to pay the church and me a compliment. And he said in the meeting, man, you would love it here. Jim is really positive, really encouraging and on the up and up. Uh, he may have even said, no hellfire and brimstone. And I went, ew. Uh-oh. Oh, no. It didn't feel good. It felt icky. I'm not saying that that's what he was saying or that's who I am. I'm just saying, whoa, I know the scripture, and I'm like, uh-oh. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. I don't want to be that guy. Here's the second one is their character. Not only their confession, but their character. Here's the deal. What's inside will eventually come out. And we have three parts to us. Our public life, our personal life, like our family who knows us up close, and our private life. What we do in the interior of our own brain. And when those three things don't line up, eventually... What is in the private will come out in the personal and eventually in the public. You can't stop it. So you th think too long, you think you're keeping your sin to yourself. In time, you will act out in some way. In time, the fruit will come eventually. This is what Jude said in his short epistle. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert... The grace of God into sensuality, that's a sexually loaded term. And it's like grace, and Jesus forgives, and we sleep around, and it's cool, man. That's the idea here. I know I'm making it a caricature, but that's the idea. They pervert grace into sensuality, denying the only Lord, Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They don't do what he says. They are apostate. You saw the, uh, during our reading was uh, Galatians 5. And the, uh, the deeds of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of uh, uh, anger, um, dissensions, sorcery, uh, all these icky things. But then you have contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, humility, gentleness, self-control, of which there's no law. And the idea is that a false teacher, not only their confession, but their character, eventually comes out. And it will not be the fruit of the Spirit. They can mask those and pretend those things, but in time, the other thing will come out and you go, oh, there it is. Okay? Character, confession, and finally, this is fascinating, converts. Here's what happens with converts and people we disciple is quite often good things that we teach get magnified in our disciples, but on the contrary, our flaws also get magnified. So I went to a school, and I'm absolutely not calling the president a false teacher. I'm not. It's actually a good man of God who has a high view of Scripture and very committed to truth, but not always the most kind or humble. And guess what I saw in the student body? 
where I went to college. Um, very little love and lots of arrogance and everyone else were liberal Christians. So that little flaw got magnified in the people that said they followed. You go, where's that in scripture? Jesus said it. He says in, in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him two times as much a son of hell as you are. So the character flaw in the Pharisees gets doubled in the convert. And that's fruit. And it takes time. And so beware. Beware. Beware, few life leaders will actually lead us to life. Here's the warning and the hope. The warning and the hope. Every single one of us can take warning from this. Take heed. Life is long. It's not over yet. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. There's more to follow. The end of the false teacher will be judgment. That's when Jesus says, Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The apostle Peter said as much. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. The idea is that ultimately, judgment will fall on false prophets, but that doesn't mean that they're not dangerous or that we should not beware. The question for us, those who have listened to, we've read the book club of the month, the latest hot topic, and we've been polluted by some of this. I probably, I think every single one of us has been damaged by false teachers. Every single last one of us. So what do we do with that? How can we st keep from error? What is our part? You've heard some of the things, test the spirits, those things, but listen to the end of Jude. In his short book that he wrote all about this, he says, you beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Clean, without error, set apart is what holiness means. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You do what you do to, to do the best you can with walking in truth and following and listening to and learning from worthy life leaders. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's our responsibility and here's the hope and the promise. You know what God does? Listen to the very, very end of Jude's epistle. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Isn't that good news? You keep showing up and you keep pressing in. You keep searching the scriptures. You keep looking at it up close. He's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his, great, his glory with great joy. Amen? Listen, let me just encourage you. Be careful with what you listen to. Keep listening. Be careful with what you read. Don't just say, oh, he's a good guy. I liked that first book. Life is long. People write some stupid things. Okay, and did you read everything? No. So you just hold loosely. The one that will never let you down is Jesus himself or the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're the one that can keep us from stumbling. I think each person here would say, Lord, we're open. We don't want a perverted version 
of the gospel or what it means to walk with Jesus and to think like Jesus and to love like Jesus and to live like Jesus. We want to be exactly like Jesus. We don't want to be Lord, Lord, uh, and not do what you do or told us to do. We want to say, Lord, Lord, and whatever you want. Would you do your work in us, Lord? Would you keep us from error? And we love you until we see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.